What is going on, sports fans, and welcome into Season 4, Episode 19 of the Jack of All Trades Sports Podcast, and we've got an absolutely loaded episode for you this week. Week 3 of the NFL season is come and gone. We recap every game in the fastest five minutes in football, including the Browns' big Thursday night win over the Steelers. We also give you some other takeaways through Week 3 of the NFL season. Are the Miami Dolphins for real? And is the AFC West division overrated? We'll talk about that and more. We also have an update on Miles Garrett after his scary car crash earlier this week. We have an update on his health and when I think and when everybody else thinks he might be available to play again, as well as that stuff. We also talk about some MLB baseball. The Cleveland Guardians clinched the AL Central Division title on Sunday. They are AL Central champions for the 11th time in franchise history. What it means for the team, uh, just kind of how they got here. A little bit of playoff talk, and we also talk about some other MLB storylines, including the NL East race between the Mets and the Braves, and Albert Pujols becoming only the fourth player in MLB history to hit 700 home runs. We end the show with some college football talk, give you my updated college football playoff if the playoff started today. And we also talk about the big games this week on the college gridiron. So we're going to get to all that and more. But first, as always, this episode is brought to you by Anchor. Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast, creation tools, editing tools, everything you need to make your very own podcast right from your phone or computer. So if you have any interest at all, you listening to making your very own podcast like I do with Jack of All Trades, here's what you need to do. You need to download the free Anchor app from Microsoft Store, Google Play, or the App Store today, or go online to anchor.fm. That's anchor.fm. Today is Wednesday, September 28th. Let's go. Welcome into season four, episode 19 of the Jack of All Trades Sports Podcast. It's the end of September. October is rapidly approaching, which means it's time to recap week three. We start in East Rutherford, New Jersey in the Meadowlands, 
where the Dallas Cowboys took on the perfect 2-0 New York Giants? Huh? Dallas week is going to be a rush. Cooper and pass. Believe it or not, Cooper Rush is the first player since the 1970 merger to lead three fourth quarter slash overtime game winning drives in his first three NFL starts. The Cowboys defense sacked Daniel Jones five times and had him under siege all night. The Cowboys move to 2-1 and 2-0 and and oh without Dak Prescott and get a big win over the Giants 23-16. We go to Denver, Colorado at Mile High Stadium where Mr. Unlimited took on Jimmy G and the 49ers in only the second NFL game ever to end with an 11-10 score Two things in Denver are painfully obvious. One, Nathaniel Hackett is no, in no way ready to be an NFL head coach. And two, Russell Wilson needs Seattle more than Seattle needs him. Yes, the Broncos are 2-1, and one, but they can't ask the defense for a Herculean effort every week. That's supposed to be on the $250 million quarterback. Speaking of highly paid quarterbacks, I don't get why so many in the media were out here talking about how it's San Francisco has a better shot at making a Super Bowl run with Jimmy Garoppolo than with the now-injured Trey Lance. I mean, there's a reason Jimmy G got replaced, and Sunday Night Football proved it, as the Broncos win 11-10. We go to Tampa Bay where Tom Brady took on Aaron Rodgers in the Battle of the Boys, but it was a defensive struggle in which the two first ballot Hall of Fame quarterbacks were held to pedestrian numbers that looks like they were pulled out of a 1980s box score printed in the Washington Post on a Monday morning. If there's a postseason rematch, look for Vita Vey to get some reps at safety. As a 350-pound nose tackle dropped into coverage and forced an Aaron Jones fumble on the one-yard line to prevent a touchdown. Talk about an elite athlete. But in a matchup of generational quarterbacks, it was the defense that won as the Packers stopped a Buccaneers potential two-point conversion. As the Packers win 14-12. We go to Arizona where the Rams took on the Cardinals. Arizona has lost 11 of the last 12 meetings with the Rams, so the closest thing to the Cardinals winning is losing without being a total embarrassment. Of course, Aaron Donald has been making people look silly for years, becoming the fastest in NFL history to 100 career sacks. Donald's greatness can't be overstated as the Rams win 20-12. We go to Seattle where the Falcons took on the Seahawks. Atlanta stay out west pays big dividends, getting their first win of the season in a notoriously difficult stadium to play in. Enjoy the win, Falcons fans. These figure to be few and far between as the Falcons win 27-23. We go to Los Angeles where the Jaguars took on the Chargers. And look, I know Justin Herbert was banged up, but at what point do we stop predicting great great things for the Chargers and just accept that they're the Chargers. But for now, props to the Saxonville defense that's given up only 10 points in the last two games. This is definitely the best the unit has looked since 2017. And talk about Trevor Lawrence. Two touchdowns, and he looks like a new quarterback and the guy that they picked number one under new head coach Doug Peterson as the Jaguars beat the Chargers 38-10. We go to Landover, Maryland, where the Commanders took on the Eagles. 
The artist that was known formerly as the football team had a horrible, horrible day. And Carson Wentz's revenge game did not live up to the hype. He was sacked on five of his first eight dropbacks, and the Philadelphia Eagles look like they could be a Super Bowl contender. The Commanders are trending in the wrong direction, while Philly, 3-0 for the first time since 2016, seems poised to run away with the NFC East. The Eagles fly, 24-8. We go to Massachusetts in Foxborough at Gillette Stadium, where LaMarvelous Action Jackson took on Mac and Cheese Jones and the Patriots. If Lamar Jackson stays healthy this season, there's no better pick for MVP. He's destroying teams with his arm and his legs, becoming the first player in Super Bowl era with at least three touchdown passes over and over 100 rushing yards in, con in a consecutive games, while focusing us to add the term triple du double triple to our sports vernacular. He is revolutioning the quarterback position, and I'm just grateful to witness it. Bill Belichick probably isn't, though. He's now a 100-loss coach who figures to get plenty more losses in New England, especially if Mac Jones misses significant time, as the Ravens win 37-26. We go to Carolina on a real snooze fest. The only thing more insane than the coaching malpractice happening in Carolina is this insane stat. The Panthers are 1-25, when scoring less than 17 points under Matt Rule, which is kind of crazy to think about. That means the defense wins games for them or they don't win at all. I'm sorry, 1-25 when allowing 17-plus points. So that's when the Carolina Panthers allow more than 17 points there, 1-25. That is not very good. Yet, the New Orleans Saints lost to this Panthers team that went the last six games without a turnover and nine games without a win. Losing the turnover battle 3-0 to commit eight turnovers over their last six quarters of football. This was always how the Saints would undermine their talented roster. As the Panthers win 22-14. We go to MetLife where the Cincinnati Bengals made their fantasy football owners happy and the Jets are disappointing New York. All is right with the world again as the Bengals win. 27-12. We go to Miami in an AFC showdown between two undefeated teams. What is it about the AFC sticking its butt where it doesn't belong? After the butt fumble, the Dolphins gave us the butt punt to make a statement by outlasting their hated rival and Super Bowl frontrunner. It sucks that this victory was tainted by controversy. Meanwhile, Buffalo's statement is they can't win unless they blow people out. And with injuries mounting on their defense, that's a tough ask moving forward. As the Dolphins are 3-0 and beat the Bills 21-19. We go to Indianapolis where Jonathan Taylor and the Colts took on Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs. Kansas City did a bunch of fluky stuff because their kicker is hurt. And legends like Patrick Mahomes and Travis Kelsey missed on plays they normally make in their sleep. That allowed Matt Ryan to throw a game-winning touchdown pass with less than 20 seconds left and lead the Colts to their first win in 2022 as the Colts win 20-17. We go to Tennessee in a battle of 0-3 teams and the Raiders, the Raiders, 
are the only team in the NFL to lose all three of their games. What are the odds as the Titans win 24-22? We go to Minnesota where the Vikings took on the Lions. Though this could be considered a predictable outcome, Kirk Cousins usually plays well when it's not a primetime game. But the fourth quarter of this game was the first of 2022 in which the Lions were held out of the end zone. I know Dan Campbell is taking flack for this loss, but there's definitely a different vibe in Motown this year. As the Vikings win, 28-24. We go to Chicago where Lovey Smith returned to face the team he brought to the Super Bowl in 2006. The Texans failed to deliver him the proper measure of revenge he deserves. But even in victory, the Bears rightfully acted like this was a loss. Consider this a brief reprieve from what's likely going to be a long season in the Windy City as the Bears win 23-20. We finish in Cleveland where the Browns took on the Steelers and it was the Jacoby Brissett and Nick Chubb show as Kevin Stefanski becomes the first coach since the Browns returned in 1999 to beat the Steelers three times and the Steelers look like they have a problem with Matt Canada and Mitch Trubisky at the helm as the Browns move to 2-1 and one and win 23-14. Week 3 is in the books, and that was the fastest five minutes in football presented by Anchor. And before we get into our Week 3 and just general NFL takeaways, a little bit of update on the podcast. We did take a week off, so this is our first episode in two weeks. She had a lot going on with school. Um, since the last recording, um, I've taken three exams, covered Kent State football twice, um, getting ready to cover their homecoming game Saturday as well. A lot of homework. Um, my birthday, turned 22, uh, went to the Browns game, went to a wedding. So I've been very busy, so... Couldn't find time within the last week to record an episode, so I apologize to you, the listeners, for that, but we're back, and we're going to have a more consistent recording schedule now that we are back in the swing of things. So let's talk about week three, and let's talk about the Cleveland Browns, and you guys, I feel bad for you, the listener, that you missed out on an episode after the Browns' 31-30 to loss to the Jets, because man, did I have some stuff to say about that loss. But luckily for the Browns, they had a short week. And I think the short week saved them. Uh, so let's take it back to last last Sunday. So not this past Sunday, the Sunday before it. Nick Chubb runs into the end zone to give the Browns a 30-17 to lead after Cade York missed the extra point, I might add. 30-17 lead with 155 left. Ladies and gentlemen... I know as a Cleveland Browns fan, I shouldn't admit this. I turned the game off when Nick Chubb scored. I said, a minute 55 left. The Jets have no timeouts. There is no way the Browns blow this game. Then I go on Twitter while I'm driving to work in Akron for the Akron Rubber Ducks. It's our last game of the year. I'm driving to work. I go on Twitter and I see, oh boy, dot, dot, dot. Tweets from, like, Browns reporters. This can't be happening. Tweets from Browns reporters. And I'm like, what did I miss? 
So I literally get in my car, turn the radio on, and I hear Jim Donovan say, the Jets recover the onside kick. Which means, one, the Jets scored, and they scored as Joe Flacco threw a, I think it was a 67-yard pass to a wide-open Corey Davis. And I mean, he was wide open. There was nobody within 20 yards of him. And they cut it to six. And then the Browns don't recover the onside kick. So in this in this time frame, I turned the game off, walked to my car, got in my car, was about halfway to Akron. And I get turned the radio on just in time to hear the Browns miss the onside kick and to hear the Jets go right down the field and win this game 31 to 30. And it was an epic collapse for the Browns on that Sunday. The defense didn't communicate well. I personally blame Joe Woods and the defense for that loss. Some people were blaming Nick Chubb for not going down or going out of bounds with the Jets had no timeouts and scoring that touchdown. Some people are blaming Cade York for the uh, missed kick. There was a lot of blame to go around. But luckily for the Browns, they had a short week and they couldn't ponder on that loss to the Jets for long. They had a players-only meeting before Thursday's game versus the Steelers, and I think they played really well on Thursday. I was there. I thought the offense looked really, really good. I think Kevin Stefanski has been in his bag with play calling this year, especially with Jacoby Brissett at quarterback, and it looks like the offense hasn't missed a beat with Jacoby Brissett at quarterback. The defense played better on Thursday night against the Steelers. They only gave up 17 points. Um, only gave up one really good drive in the second half. So that was really good to see as well. So overall, am I disappointed the Browns aren't 3-0? Yes. Do I think the Browns should be 3-0? Absolutely. But this win over Pittsburgh was what this team needed. Um, obviously, beating the Steelers is all, always huge when you're on the Cleveland Browns. But... I think it was just a big win to get that taste of that Jets loss out of their mouth. But I've been really impressed with the offense this year. Under Kevin Stefanski, um, it's clear to me, and I don't feel like this is an exaggeration at all. I feel completely comfortable saying that Jacoby Brissett is better than Baker Mayfield. You heard it right. Jacoby Brissett is better than Baker Mayfield. Through three weeks, I think it's pretty obvious that he's better than Baker Mayfield. And I know you guys might be calling me a Baker Mayfield hater or whatever after listening to this, but look at the numbers. Let's do a comparison to these numbers. First of all, it is obvious how much more Kevin Stefanski trusts Jacoby Brissett to make throws and to make plays than he did Baker Mayfield. Just look at their stats in that regard. But taking a look at Jacoby Brissett's stats, through three games, the Browns have a 2-1 record. Jacoby has completed 66% of his passes, 596 yards, four touchdowns, one interception. His rating is 94.3. Baker Mayfield in Carolina. In three games, 42 of 81. So that's 51% passing completions. 550 yards, three touchdowns, one interception. His rating is 80.8. But when you look at quarterback rating, 
which is a stat a lot of people use to grade quarterbacks. Jacoby Brissett has a 62.6 quarterback rating, which is top 10 in the NFL right now. Baker Mayfield's quarterback rating right now is 18.8, which, if you're following, is 32nd in the NFL, which means it's the last in the NFL among starting quarterbacks. So Jacoby, I think, is better than Baker, and I think it's opened up Kevin Stefanski's play-calling ability, and we're seeing some of the similarities we saw between the 2020 season and the 2022 seat. Well, the 2022... Let me, let me rephrase that. We're seeing some similarities in the play-calling now that we saw in the 2020 season, and that's huge for the Browns. One play that... Um... Um, really illustrated his confidence in Jacoby Brissett, Kevin Stefanski's, was on Thursday night against Pittsburgh. It was a third and one from, I want to say about our uh, the Browns' 30-yard line. Um, and all game before this, the Browns had either been QB sneaking or H- halfback dive on third and one, right? They fake the handoff to Chubb. They get three Steelers to... Bite on this handoff. Jacoby rolls right, throws deep to Amari Cooper, and the Browns get in deep in Steelers' territory on that play. And he trusts Jacoby Brissett. Um, and I think it's huge. Through three games this season, he's been playing the best ball of his journeyman career, Jacoby Brissett has. I mentioned he ranks ninth in the league with an adjusted total QBR of 63.7. That's ahead of stars like Matt Stafford, Aaron Rodgers, and Tom Brady. I've been really impressed with his uh, connection with Amari Cooper as well. And Amari Cooper's having a great year so far as well for the Browns. Amari Cooper this season, 19 receptions, 219 yards, two touchdowns. He had back-to-back 100-yard games, became the first Cleveland Browns receiver since Josh Gordon in the All-Pro year to have back-to-back 100-yard games for the Browns. So that, that he's been really good, and David Njoku's been really good. It's been really, really good to see. Uh, just to be clear, I'm giving a lot of praise to Jacoby Brissett in the passing game, but the Cleveland running game behind Nick Chubb, Kareem Hunt, and the dom- dominant offensive line is rolling. The Browns' defense, which is talented, besides that uh Fourth quarter collapse against the Jets has been pretty good as well. But Brissett is one of the biggest reasons, in my opinion, why the Browns are 2-1 and one and in an early tie for first place in the AFC North standing. So I've been really impressed with the offense. He's pushing the ball downfield, and most, most notably to Amari Cooper, He's keeping drives alive with his feet, even though he's not the most mobile quarterback, and he's making the winning plays, including last Thursday's pivotal quarterback sneak. When Jacoby got behind the line, he crashed through several Pittsburgh Steelers before tumbling for a key first down. Um, he, He popped up, threw his right arm in the air, then kicked out his right knee. 
and got the dog pound fired up. A couple plays later, the Browns punch it in. They clinch the touchdown. It's the game-clinching touchdown. And the Browns win 29-17. So, I, yeah, I've been really impressed with Kevin Stefanski, the Browns offense, and Jacoby Brissett, who has played like a top 15 quarterback through the first three games of this year. Now for a more serious story involving the Browns, and that's an update on Miles Garrett. Um, Browns defensive end Miles Garrett, he was involved in a car accident in Sharon Township, Ohio, a couple a couple of days ago. Um, we now know the extent of his injuries. We don't know his game status for Sunday, but I just kind of want to go through the whole thing with you guys. So, Browns defensive end Miles Garrett. Suffered a shoulder sprain and a bicep strain, as well as cuts and bruises in the one car crash he was involved in Monday afternoon. Garrett was released from a Cleveland hospital the same day after being treated for the injuries. The crash occurred after Garrett left practice at the Browns training facility in Berea, Ohio. Um, According to the Ohio State Highway Patrol, Garrett crashed his 2021 Porsche near Wadsworth, Ohio at around 3 p.m. The vehicle went off the the side of the road and flipped over before coming to arrest. A female passenger who was in the vehicle was taken to the hospital with non-life-threatening injuries. Highway Patrol said impairment by drugs or alcohol was not suspected and that Garrett and the the woman were both wearing seatbelts, body cam footage, provided by the Medina's County Sheriff's Office, showed first responders examining both of Garrett's arms while he sits on the grass. Eventually, they helped Garrett off the ground and walked slowly with him to a nearby ambulance. It was reported by NFL Network's Tom Pelissero that Garrett was driving on the wet road. He swerved to avoid an animal that was in the road, and he overcorrected, which caused his car to flip a couple of times. So it's obviously a very scary situation for Miles Garrett, obviously for the female passenger who was in his car, and for the Cleveland Browns. Um, but before we get into analysis, when we could see this guy on the field again, first thing is first. First thing is first. They're lucky to be alive. When a car flips, it's usually not good news for whoever's inside. But they were wearing their seatbelts, and I think that's – if they weren't wearing their seatbelts, I don't think they live. So that just shows you how important wearing your seatbelt is, number one. Number two, that, that's the only thing that matters in the grand scheme of things, is that both of them suffered uh, non-life-threatening injuries and that they're both going to make full recoveries. That is the other thing. Now to get to the football side of things. I'm told – by some sources that I have with the Browns, that Miles Garrett is going to try and play Sunday with the Atlanta Falcons, uh, at the Atlanta Falcons. I, I'm being told by sources that he is going to try and play. Do I think it's feasible? Who's to say? I don't know. Andrew Berry said in a statement yesterday, Basically, something along the lines of that 
They aren't going to rule him out yet for Sunday. The Browns aren't. But the, the uh, medical team for the Browns are going to do the evaluations throughout the week and then make a judgment on if, if he can play. If you guys want me to guess if he'd play or not, I would guess he wouldn't play. Um, I would guess that he wouldn't play. I just think he needs to chill. I, I don't want to say chill, but I think it would be in the best interest for the Browns and for Garrett after something scary like that happened. Maybe Miles, you know, Miles will be sore dealing with the bicep strain and all that stuff. I think it might be a good idea for him to, you know, take this Sunday off. It's against the Falcons, who are an NFC South opponent, who are one of, I know you shouldn't consider this when making this decision, but they're one of the weaker opponents on the Browns' remaining schedule. So I'd take that in, into consideration and just take Sunday off, allow yourself to get back into the swing of things. And Browns safety John Johnson the third actually talked about that. And um, we have some audio clips to play for you. So here's Browns John Johnson the third talking about the the defense overcoming the adversity of Anthony Walker Jr.'s season-ending injury and Miles Garrett's accident. Take a listen. Cleveland has been about <laughs> responding, literally. Uh, so uh, we've done a decent job. You can always do better. But um, that's one thing that I can say, like, that we've had practice at. You know, it's just blocking out the noise, really locking in. Um, and weeks like this, we usually go out there and, and have a good performance. So hopefully we can just continue that trend and um, – it's really just, it's going to take everybody. So that was John Johnson talking about overcoming the adversity of Anthony Walker Jr. season-ending injury in Miles Garrett's car accident. Um, Anthony Walker did suffer a season-ending injury against the Steelers on Thursday night. Um, so we hope for a full recovery from him as well. It was a tough scene to see him get the air cast on and get carted off Thursday night. All right, we have some more audio clips for you. Here is John Johnson again, John Johnson third Brown safety, talking about seeing the pictures of Miles Garrett's car and how scary that of a sight that was for him to see as Miles Garrett's friend and teammate. Take a listen. I don't know the health of whoever's passenger was, but yeah, it's kind of crazy. They said it flipped over multiple times, so anytime that happens, like you at least have some type of major injury. But I'm just glad it came out of there clean. I just tried out. We also have a quick one from Nick Chubb talk, uh, just expressing his gratitude that Miles Garrett's okay. Yeah, at the end of the day, he's okay. That's all that matters for us. And, and now we know Miles going to be fine. Yeah, the day, um, Nick Chubb, soft-spoken, said, at the end of the day, all that matters is he's okay and we'll know, we know he's going to be fine. And then here's the last one we'll play for you. Jacoby Brissett talking about Miles um, Garrett and how the team can handle adversity. I think we have the right guys in this room uh, to deal with things uh, that happen. Uh, I think guys understand how uh, how fast this league works and, and the, the mindset of, you know, the next man up. Uh, and uh, so I just, I just think that's the mindset. Uh, and I, I know that's what Kev preaches to us too. Jacoby. Next man up. So... We obviously hope Miles is healthy enough to play on Sunday, as the, and I feel like his teammates do as well. But it's a tough, scary situation, and it's about responding. 
And even if Miles Garrett isn't there on Sunday, the Browns still have a game that they need to go out there and win. And I think that's a great mindset that Kevin Stefanski has this team in right now. All right, let's talk about some other takeaways, not only from week three, but through the first three weeks of the season. Obviously, we're only three weeks into the season, so some of these could be considered overreacting, but I'm going based off purely what I've seen on the field through three weeks of the season. My first takeaway is that the AFC West as a division was crowned way too early and that it is the most overrated division in football. All the talk all offseason was about Oh, the Broncos got Russell Wilson. Oh, the Raiders just got Devontae Adams. The Chargers are going to win the division. The Chiefs are the Chiefs. The Chiefs are the only team with a 2-1 and one record in that division. The Chargers just got blown out by the Jaguars. Uh, excuse me, the Broncos have a 2-1 and one record too. But it's so easy for me to forget the Broncos have a 2-1 and one record because they've looked horrible. In all three of their games. They got lucky to win that game against the Texans, despite poor coaching and poor offensive performance. And they got lucky to win that game against the 49ers, despite poor coaching and poor offensive performance. The Raiders are 0-3 after making the playoffs last year. Josh McDaniels looks like he could be in over his head. The Chargers, I don't know. I know Justin Herbert was injured. But I don't know what's going on with them. Joey Boza got taken out of the game on Sunday as well. And the Chiefs, yeah, they're 2-1, but that loss to the Colts, their offense didn't look good at all. And I know Pat Mahomes is still doing great things on the field, but he is missing Tyreek Hill. So I would even go as far as to say the AFC West is not the best division in football. Maybe it's the AFC North. So that's my one takeaway from the first three weeks. My second takeaway from the first three weeks is the Miami Dolphins are for real. Um, I'll admit that I'm not the biggest believer. Haven't been the biggest believer in Tua Tonga Viola since he's come into the league. I thought they should have picked Justin Herbert above him. But this season, Tua Tungabiola is proving me wrong. Tua's been very, very good. He's been very efficient, very accurate. His completion percentage is through the roof. He's making all kinds of throws. And I think his ability to connect with two of the top, uh, I would say, 15, 20 receivers in the NFL in Jalen Waddell and Tyreek Hill has opened up Mike McDaniel's playbook a lot and has allowed Tua to make some throws that I didn't know he was capable of making. Mike McDaniel looks like a great coach offensively, and the Miami Dolphins' defense is very, very good as well. So I'm going to say the Miami Dolphins are for real. And Dolphins fans, if you're listening, I don't hate you. I didn't pick you to make the playoffs. But a couple weeks ago, I said to an anonymous Dolphins fan... That they would be making that the Dolphins and Tua have opened my eyes. It was after their game against the Ravens, in which Tua threw six touchdowns. I said, I think the Dolphins are going to make the playoffs as a seven seed after I had them not making the playoffs. 
if I tell you a team's going to make the playoffs that I didn't have originally in the playoffs, that's a compliment. But this anonymous Dolphins fan took to Twitter, subtweeted about me, and basically said I was still hating on the Dolphins. I don't know how that works, but I digress. The only thing I don't like about the Dolphins 3-0 start is how annoying the Dolphins fans are going to be about this. We're going to have to hear about Tua Tagovailoa being Tom Brady for the next eight weeks. Because, and I say eight weeks because if you look at the Miami Dolphins schedule, there's a legitimate chance the Miami Dolphins start 11-0. Let's play the schedule game, shall we, with the Miami Dolphins. I think their toughest game in their next 11 games is this Thursday night against Cincinnati Bengals. But if they win that game, they'll be 4-0. They have the Jets on the road. That's a win. Vikings at home. That's a win. Steelers at home. That's a win. Lions on the road. Tough game. That's a win. Bears on the road. Win. Browns at home with Jacoby Brissett. Should be a win. Texans at home. Win. 49ers on the road, win. And then their schedule gets a lot harder with the Chargers, Bills, Packers, Patriots. But the Dolphins could legitimately start 11 or 12-0 because they have an easy cupcake schedule. But in the NFL, anybody can beat anybody, but this Miami Dolphins team looks like they could be Super Bowl contenders. That's my second takeaway. And my third main takeaway before we get into our power rankings heading into week four and our week four picks is that the NFC as a conference is not going to win the Super Bowl this year. Nuts could be considered an overreaction because nobody, and I mean nobody, thought the Bengals were going to make the Super Bowl last year. So I think it's way too early to tell. But three weeks in, I think the best NFC team, NFC team has been the Eagles. But when you look at the AFC, you got the Dolphins, the Bills, the Ravens, the Chiefs. I mean, like, outside of the Eagles, the Packers are 2-1, sure, but they haven't looked great offensively. Buccaneers are 2-1. Rams are 2-1. Same story. The offenses haven't shown up. So it is a little bit of an overreaction, but through the first three weeks, outside of the Philadelphia Eagles, I'm a lot more impressed with all the AFC teams than I am the NFC teams. Let's transition to our NFL power rankings heading into week four, starting with the number one, number one, one spot. Uh, There are two teams I considered here. They were the bo- both the 3-0 teams. But I'm going to go with the Philadelphia Eagles as my number one team in the NFL heading into week four. Um, they are a big green wrecking machine right now. Um, Jalen Hurts and the Eagles offense has been showing out. Um, but And that's, that's all well and good. But now Nick Sirianni's defense has announced its arrival with a nine-sack performance Against the the car against the Commanders and Carson Wentz, the most pressing problem for the undefeated Eagles is that Devontae Smith was so dominant on Sunday, it calls into question whether AJ Brown is the team's true number one receiver. 
But having two number one receivers isn't actually a problem. The Eagles have been dominant in every facet of the game on both sides of the ball in all three phases. They're my number one team heading into the NFL Week 4. Number two, I got the Miami Dolphins. Um, They enter Week 4 alone atop the AFC East after a stranger-than-fiction 21-19 win over the Bills. Their offense possessed the ball for just under 20 minutes, but the quick-strike attack made most of its limited opportunities. The biggest throw and play of the game on Sunday, 3rd and 22 in the fourth quarter, Jalen Waddle split the Bills' secondary for a 45-yard gain that set up the go-ahead score. Um, the offense is rolling. Tua is rolling. The defense has made plays. They held the Bills to only 19 points. The Dolphins are my number two team in the NFL heading into week four. Number three, I got the Bills. Um, I would have had them at number one both of the first two weeks. Um, they ran 51 more plays than the Dolphins on Sunday, and they still got beat. Frustrations from this game aside, the biggest concern in Buffalo is their injury-ravaged defense that was without five starters in Miami. Micah Hyde, their star safety, is out for the year with a neck injury. Jordan Poyer and Dane Jackson and Christian Benford have all been sidelined. On Sunday, the Dolphins were able to exploit the Bills' untested backups with some big downfield strikes. And that is the concerning trend that will continue as long as Buffalo is undermanned. So I got the Bills at three. At four, I'm going to go with the Packers. Um, Aaron Le- Le- Rodgers might be finding new love in his wideout room. Uh, rookie fourth rounder Romeo du- Dobbs. Romeo Dubs, Romeo Dobbs. Hauled in all eight of his targets for 73 yards and a score in the win against the Buccaneers. If Dobbs can gain Rodgers' trust, he can become a breakout star overnight. Um, they did get David uh, Bakhtari back on Sunday. He made another attempt to return to the Packers lineup. He played 35 offensive snaps. If he can return to form, it would be a massive lift for the entire offense. So I got the Packers at four. Five, I got the Chiefs. Um, they're going to want that loss back on Sunday, but they didn't feel like the interior inferior team in a road matchup against the Colts. Um, Sky Moore muffed a punt. Harrison Butker's fill in missed the 34 yard field goal try and an extra point. By the time Mahomes threw his lone interception, the chiefs had already made enough errors to deserve their fate. I think we're going to see a much cleaner version of this Chiefs team Sunday night against the bucks. They're number five. Number six, I have the Baltimore Ravens. Um, in week three, the Ravens' de- defense collapsed in the fourth quarter against the Dolphins. On Sunday, their defense closed out the Patriots. They produced three turnovers in the fourth quarter, including a crucial end zone interception by Marlon Humphrey, which helped seal their 11-point win. Lamar Jackson looks like the MVP frontrunner. Um, he had five total touchdowns Sunday. They look like they're rolling, and they just got J.K. Dobbins back. I got the Ravens at six. I got the Rams at seven. Um, Their offense is still going through some sort of funk, but the defense has kept them on a winning track. Um, They held the Cardinals without a touchdown. They punted on their first four possessions and settled for four field goals as the Rams took control of this game. 
Um, so the Rams' defense is there. They're number seven in my power rankings. If the offense would get there, they'd be in a lot better shape and would move up. Eighth, I'm going to take the Buccaneers. Um, Tom Brady just needs his receivers back. Uh, Mike Evans was out with his without out with a suspension. Chris Godwin out with a hamstring. Julio Jones out with a knee, and he was also missing his left tackle with an elbow injury. Um, it was bad timing for a key conference showdown that could have significant ramifications on playoff seating. But if they get all those guys back, uh, the Buccaneers will be just fine. They're number eight in my power rankings. Number nine, I got the uh, Minnesota Vikings. Kirk Cousins and the Vikings looked outclassed against the Eagles in their second game of in week two. Um, but they were able to respond digging out of a 14-0 and 24-14 hole this Sunday to beat the Lions. Uh, and the Vikings, I think, are one of my playoff teams, so I like what they've been doing this season so far. They're number nine. Number 10, I got the Bengals. Um, they're one and two, but they finally look they finally looked a part of defending conference champion on Sunday, setting the tone with two first quarter touchdown drives en route to a 27-12 win over the Jets. Joe Burrow threw three TD passes. Um, the Bengals still need to figure out what's wrong with the running game, but they're still my top, my 10th team in the NFL. 11, I would go Tennessee Titans. 12, I would go 49ers. 13, Dallas Cowboys. 14, Cleveland Browns. 15, Los Angeles Chargers. Those would be my top 15 in the power rankings. Let's get to our NFL Week 4 picks. So, in Week 5, I'll give you the record that we had in our picks. It wasn't a great week for picks. So far this year, we are still in the 93rd percentile, which I guess is pretty good. We are 26-18 and 18 on the year. 27-18, and 18, excuse me. In Week 3, we were... Ten and six, which we will take every day of the week. Let's get into week four. Week four, Miami Dolphins go to Cincinnati, take on the Bengals, 3-0 Dolphins against the defending AFC champions in Cincinnati. The Bengals will be wearing the um, the all-white helmets. Ooh, the all-white helmets make me want to pick the Bengals. But... If the Dolphins are for real, which I think they are, they'd win this game. So I'll take the Dolphins to win on the road. Vikings at the Saints in London. Shout out Queen Elizabeth and King Charles. Um, I'm going to take the Vikings to win over the Saints. The Saints look like a mess right now. Browns at Falcons. Give me the Browns. Um, I think even if they don't have Miles Garrett, the Browns are more talented than the Falcons. And at the run game... And if Jacoby Brissett is effective, that should be enough to outlast Marcus Mariota and the Falcons. The Commanders at the Cowboys in Dallas. I'm going to go with the Cowboys. Um, Cooper Rush has looked fine in his first two starts with Dak Prescott on injured reserve. Um, that defense swarmed Daniel Jones. They got a lot of sacks on Daniel Jones. And after seeing what the Commanders offensive line did, Against the Eagles, I'm expecting the Cowboys to have a similar good performance. Seahawks at the Lions. Give me the Lions at home. 
Um, I liked what the Lions have looked like this year. Uh, they only have one win to their name, but they played hard in every game, and I think that'll get you some wins. And I think they should win this game against Seattle at home. Titans at Colts. The 1-2 Titans at the 1-1-1 one, one, one Colts. Um, this is an interesting, interesting game. Uh, it's a big AFC South game because I think even though the Jaguars are 2-1, and one, I still think these are the two best teams in the AFC South. I'll take the Colts to win at home. I think Jonathan Taylor is going to have a good game Sunday. Bears at the Giants, 2-1 versus 2-1. I'll take the Giants at home. Jags at the Eagles. Give me the Eagles. That's probably going to be my lock of the week. The Jets at the Steelers. Some breaking news on this matchup. Zach Wilson is healthy, and he will make his season debut for his New York Jets Sunday in Pittsburgh. Steelers should win this game, so I'm going to take the Steelers. One of the best games on the slate in week four. Bills in Baltimore at the Ravens. Lamar versus Josh Allen. I'm going to take the Bills to win because they're my Super Bowl pick. But I would not be surprised if the Ravens win that game at all. Chargers at Texans. I think the Chargers need to bounce back, and I think they will. Cardinals at Carolina. Give me Kyler Murray and the Cardinals over Baker. Uh, the Packers at home versus a Mac Jones-less Patriots team should be a layup. The Packers should win that game. The Raiders at home versus the Broncos. I'm going to go with the Raiders. I don't see the Raiders starting 0-4. It's at home against the Broncos, who haven't looked great, so I'll take the Raiders. Chiefs in Tampa versus the Buccaneers. Doesn't look like Chris Godwin will be back. So I'm going to take the Chiefs to beat the Buccaneers. And Monday Night Football, Rams at 49ers. Give me the Rams. So those are my picks. Here we go. Dolphins over Bengals. Vikings over Saints. Browns over Falcons. Cowboys over Commanders. Lions over Seahawks. Colts over Titans. Giants over Bears. Eagles over Jags. Steelers over Jets. Bills over Ravens. Chargers over Texans. Cardinals over Panthers, Packers over Patriots, Raiders over Broncos, Chiefs over Bucks, and Rams over 49ers. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we've got a lot to get to on the AL Central title winning Cleveland Guardians, the MLB season as a whole, and college football. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back after a word from Anchor. A payoff pitch. A swing and a pop-up. Foul territory behind the plate. Luke Bailey is there. He makes the catch. Ball game. And once again, Cleveland, you will have another October to remember. The Guardians American League Central Division champs for the 11th time. And hugs all around between the third base foul line and the pitcher's mound as Cleveland wins it in style. A five RBI game by Stephen Kwan, who capped it off with a grand slam in the eighth inning. Aaron Savali, another strong start covering five. And Cleveland sweeps a road trip to Chicago and now to Texas. That's right, the Guardians are the 2022 AL Central Division champions. 
A year which nobody expected the Guardians to finish atop the AL Central. Nobody expected the Guardians to make the playoffs. Um, I predicted the Guardians to finish third in the AL Central this year behind Minnesota and Chicago, and that obviously did not happen. And they proved me and a lot of people wrong, and they made it known on their Twitter account celebrating um, their championship. The social media team was on one after the Guardians clinched the AL Central, uh, trolling the likes of the Chicago White Sox, uh, Elvis Andrews, who said the Guardians would crumble down the stretch. Well, they did the exact exact opposite of crumbling. Um, so last time we had this uh, an episode of this podcast was two weeks ago, September 14th. The Guardians' magic number was 19 to clinch the division. Two weeks later, they won the division already. Part of that's due to the Guardians' play. They swept the White Sox in that series in Chicago, and they took four out of five against Minnesota. And they also swept the Rangers in between that. But part of it is the White Sox and Twins just collapsed. The White Sox are 2-8 and eight in their last 10 games. They've lost seven in a row. The Guardians are 8-2 and two in their last 10 games. And their seven-game win streak, which coincided with the White Sox seven-game losing streak, just happened to uh, correspond at the same time. Um, and their seven-game win streak did come to an end last night. The Guardians did. But it doesn't matter. They clinched the division. They're going to be the three seed no matter what. Um, and... I guess the real question now for the Guardians is they lined up their pitching rotation, so they flopped Shane Bieber and Tristan McKenzie in the pitching rotation. Bieber pitched last night. McKenzie's pitching tonight. So on a normal five days rest, Bieber will be ready for game one. McKenzie will be ready for game two. So that's why the Guardians did that. They're ready for the playoffs. The only thing that faces the Guardians now is, are they going to be facing the Blue Jays? Are they going to be facing the Tampa Bay Rays? Or are they going to be facing the Seattle Mariners? If the playoffs started today, they'd be facing the Seattle Mariners, who are just collapsing a little bit. They're 3-7 and seven in their last 10 games, and they still haven't clinched a wildcard spot. The Orioles are three and a half back of the Mariners, so... If the Mariners keep losing, the Orioles keep winning. It could be the Baltimore Orioles. But I don't expect that to happen. Um, I think the Blue Jays are pretty firmly locked into that top wild card spot with a one-and-a-half game lead on Tampa Bay, a three-game lead on Seattle. And Tampa Bay, they are playing the Guardians this week. So for the next two nights, we played them last night. The Guardians lost 6-5 to five in extra innings. Um, they play them tonight and tomorrow. So maybe it is a little bit of a postseason preview if the Guardians can win these next two and the Mariners can beat up on Texas. But I would predict the Guardians would face the Seattle Mariners, which a lot of fans are going to be like, oh boy, here we go again. They're going to get swept out of the first round. Because the Mariners took, what was it, five out of six games against the Guardians this year in the regular season? I mean, you can say that, but what has this Guardians team done all year long? Proved you wrong, all right? And 
When people say the playoffs are a new season, that's true in all the other sports, but it's especially true in baseball because these three games the Guardians are going to have in the wild card series, A, are all going to be in Cleveland. B, you're going to get to have Bieber, McKenzie, and Quantrill on the mound. And C, your bullpen's going to be rested. So, I do like the Guardians' chances to win that first-round series. And in the playoffs, since you're going up against high-level pitching, the teams that are flashy offensively, that hit the home runs, that do all that stuff, don't necessarily win all the time. It is the teams that get on base, make the ordinary plays look extraordinary, the teams that hustle, and the teams that get clutch, timely hitting. And that has been the Guardians' MO all year long. Not to get too ahead of ourselves in the playoff talk, because even if the Guardians do get swept out of the first round, it is a successful season for the Guardians. They're the youngest team in baseball. They are, um, they, their average age is younger than the average age in AAA. They have a bunch of rookies who are just, uh, you know, contributing to an AL Central squad. And I feel like this is the most probably unexpected division title they've had in a while, especially I would say under Terry Francona. In 2016, when they made the World Series, I think a lot of people expected them to be good, maybe not expect them to win the division title. In 2017, they brought in Edwin Encarnacion after going to the World Series, and they won 102 games. 2018, they won only 91 games, but they were still heavy, heavy favorites, and I think they still won the AL Central by like 10 games that year because of how bad the AL Central was. But this team, this Guardians team, they're surprised. They're surprised to a lot of people. But I think they're a legitimate World Series threat. I mean, and you can laugh at me and say I'm biased, but I just laid out the, the blueprint in the playoffs. You need effective starting pitching, which they have. You need a good bullpen, which they have. You need clutch, timely hitting. You need you need to get on base. And you need to make the ordinary plays. And that's what this Guardians team has done all year. Um, I thought it was fitting in the clinching game on Sunday that Stephen Kwan hit a grand slam. Um, because he's been... I don't know if I'd call him the Guardians MVP this year. I think that could go to Jose Ramirez or Emmanuel Classe. But... He's been so consistent, and he's been exactly what this team needed in a leadoff hitter, and he's done everything right. And I think it was really fitting that the guy who started this season off with a bang with that 5-for-5 five five game in Kansas City kind of ended the season and gave the Guardians the division title pretty much with that grand slam. The Guardians are the first team in MLB history to win a division in with in a season where they had at least 16 rookies make their ML, MLB debuts. Um 
I keep saying the Guardians are um, surprising people, but I don't think uh, Chris Antonetti and Terry Francona were surprised. Um, Chris Antonetti said in the clubhouse on Sunday, from day one, they've come together. You go around the clubhouse, the tone our veteran players set, like Jose Ramirez, Ahmed Rosario, Shane Bieber, Austin Hedges. Tito said, just find a way to help the team win. They embraced that mentality. They won the division with an old school style of baseball, which Twins and White Sox fans hated all year long, even going as far as to calling it a disgusting brand of baseball in which the offense puts the ball in play. They play great defense, and they have a lights-out bullpen anchored by Emmanuel Classe, who leads the league in saves. This Guardians team strikes out less than any team in the majors, and nobody goes from first to third on a ball and play better than the Guardians. So what a season it's been for the Guardians. They clinched the division. They are 86 and 60, 68, and they still have eight games left to go before the playoffs in Cleveland, October 7th, 8th, and 9th. Let's talk about some other MLB storylines. Mainly want to talk about the lone playoff race that is going on right now. And that is the Mets and the Braves who are now tied atop the National League Eastern Division. And I believe the Braves do own the tiebreaker in the head-to-head series against the Mets. So that is a storyline to watch in the last week of the Major League Baseball season. They both sit at 97-58, and and I would like to look at their upcoming schedule. So let's, we got the Braves' upcoming schedule pulled up. Here's the Mets' upcoming schedule. If I remember correctly, I think it's pretty even, but we have to go take a look. So the Mets have, oh, well, I stand corrected. So they both play. So the Braves tonight play the, also shout out to the Braves website people because when I clicked the Braves regular season schedule, it auto put me on September 28th, which is today's date. When I clicked the Mets regular season schedule, it put me back in March in spring training. What the heck's that about, Mets? Get your website people back on the same page. It is not March. It is September. But the Braves play at Washington tonight. The Mets play versus the Marlins tonight. So those are two winnable games for both these teams. And then, in my opinion, the division will get decided in the three-game series September 30th, October 1st, and October 2nd when the Braves welcome in the Mets to Truist Park. So after that series, the Braves face the Marlins and the Mets face the Nationals. So it's the same three teams rotating on these team schedules. I want to look at their pitching their pitching matchups. The Mets have Carlos Carrasco on the hill tonight. It's actually, no, it's Taiwan Walker tonight for the Mets. So, uh, 
on Friday, it says it's to be determined. So I'm interested to see. So Friday... So Scherzer and DeGrom will be available for two out of three of those games against the Braves. I just did the math. Let me see who the Braves have going because when you see Scherzer and DeGrom, don't you think the Mets have a good chance to take two out of three in that series against the Braves? I know it's in Atlanta, and that could be a huge factor, but... At the same time, I just don't know who's going to beat. Okay, so it looks like Max Freed pitched yesterday. So that means he would not be available this weekend, which would be huge. So I'll go ahead. Based off that knowledge, knowing that Max Freed is not going up against Scherzer or DeGrom, I would give the Mets the edge in two out of three of those games against the Braves. And I'll go ahead and pick the Mets to hang on and win the NL East. Um, I think both these teams are legitimate World Series contenders. Obviously, the Braves won the World Series last year. I think the Mets have maybe the best starting pitching in Major League Baseball. But based off that knowledge, knowing the Braves won't have Max Freed available, Knowing the Mets have Scherzer and DeGrom available for two out of three of those games, I'll take the Mets to win the NL East over the Braves. Looking at the other... Um, looking at the playoff picture, so in the American League, if the playoffs were to start today, the Astros and the Yankees would get the bye. They both clinched their division. I think they will both hang on to get the bye. The Guardians will be the three seed. If the playoffs started today, they would be facing the six-seeded Seattle Mariners in Cleveland. And the four-seeded Toronto Blue Jays would be hosting the five-seeded Tampa Bay Rays. In the National League, the 106-win Dodgers would have a bye. The 97-wins Braves would have a bye. And the Cardinals will be the three seed hosting the six seeded Philadelphia Phillies. And the Mets would be hosting the Padres in the wildcard series. So, the other race that isn't exactly figured out in the National League is that wildcard race. The Phillies hold a one and a half game lead on the Braves, not the Braves, the Brewers, excuse me, for that last wildcard spot. I expect the Phillies to get it because the Phillies play the Cubs this week and the Brewers play the Cardinals. But who's to say? I don't know. But that's what the playoff picture would look like today. Before we move into college football, I got to talk about Albert Pujols here. Um, one of the biggest storylines I was following all season long, would Albert Pujols Get 700 home runs. And he answered that question emphatically on Friday night. As, of course, it's Albert. He did it in style. The guy doesn't know how to do anything not in style. 
He hit 699 in the first inning against the Dodgers. And he stepped up to the plate in the fourth inning with a chance to make some baseball history. And I'll try and get the call for you guys. So you guys can hear what it sounded like. But Albert's one of the all-time legends. And I'm glad he came back this year to get to 700 home runs, becoming only the fourth player in Major League Baseball history to get 700 home runs. Albert Pujols. Homered earlier tonight. As the Dodgers have changed pitchers, Phil Bickford enters the game. Bickford, a 4.37 ERA on the year for L.A., facing the great Pujols, who is one swing away from 700 career home runs. One on a breaking ball from Bickford. Phil Bickford has allowed 10 home runs this year. This entire ballpark is on its feet, holding its breath for Albert. Ball one. So yeah, that was the call. Albert Pools joins the 700 home run club. Fourth player in MLB history. Uh, let me see if I can name him. Barry Bonds, Babe Ruth, Hank Aaron, Albert Pools. That's great company. For those of you that don't know baseball, those are like three greatest players ever. So when you're mentioned in the same sentence as them, that is good company to be in. Um, but in other, um, I think Albert Pools, I, I don't – I got to look this up because – I heard this stat the other day. I don't know if it's true, but I, I think if let me let me let me make sure that I'm getting this right. Before I before I give it to you, but it has to do with 3000 hits and 600 home runs. Because I think I don't know, I don't think Bonds has 3000 hits. I don't think Babe Ruth has 3000 hits. I think Hank Aaron might. Hank Aaron does. So, 
the stat that I heard was correct. So Albert Pujols, I said he's the fourth player in MLB history with 600, uh, 700 home runs, but he's the only the second player besides Hank Aaron in MLB history to have 3,000 hits and 700 home runs. That is quite the accomplishment. And Pujols is one of the greatest hitters of the generation. He's been doing it since, I think, 2002, 2004. He's been in the league for quite a while. I think he's going to retire at the end of this year, but, you know, he's got... Wouldn't it be something if the Cardinals won the World Series in his last year? The last dance, if you will. But he's one of the greatest players ever. I feel like in an era that's just in between, like just coming off the steroid era when you had the, those guys, those great players who I think should be in the Hall of Fame still, in Barry Bonds, Mark McGuire, and Sammy Sosa who hit all these home runs. I feel like guys like Albert Pujols, like Miguel Cabrera, who like remained clean throughout their careers, who had great, great success, 3,000 hits, um, 700 home runs for Albert Pujols. I feel like it gets overshadowed a little bit. And, but at the end of the day, these guys, Albert Pujols did it the right way. He didn't use steroids. Um, and he, he got 700 home runs, 3,000 hits, multiple time MVP, multiple time World Series champion. He's one of the greatest ever. And I'm glad that his career ended on that high note of getting 700 hits, uh, 700 home runs, you know, I don't think he's going to pass Babe Ruth with 714. So um, selfishly, I think it'd be pretty cool if he ends on exactly 700 home runs. But this dude could roll out of bed and hit a home run. And I think it's weird, like, thinking about Albert Pujols' season, he only had five home runs in the first half of the year. And then he participated in the home run derby. And if you remember, a lot of people joked about Pujols in the home run derby, they were like, oh, Albert's going to get beat. I don't even know if he can hit five home runs, you know? Um, and he was going up against Kyle Schwarber, who was at the time leading the National League in home runs. And Pools beat him. And you often hear about a home run derby slump for a hitter. But it was the opposite for Albert because he hit 19 home runs in the second half of the year. And if you look at his body of work this season, he's having like a two-war, three-war season, which you're not supposed to be doing at close to 40. So he's having a great year. And I think it's great to see a good player go out on like a high note. And not just the high note of 700 home runs, the high note of actually having a good season. So big shout-out to Albert Pujols. All right, let's go to college football to wrap up this week's episode. And we'll start with the Georgia Bulldogs as the number one team. in the. All right, how about we start with this? We will recap kind of what we've seen from the top 10 teams um, over the past couple of weeks. I will give you my updated top six, including the four teams I think should be in the college football playoff if it started today. And then we'll get into our week five picks for college football. So let's start with the Georgia Bulldogs who 
We're 48-point favorites against my Kent State Golden Flashes on Saturday. And they only beat Kent State 39-22. to Georgia now knows what it's like to not completely blow out a team after winning a sloppy game on their part over Kent State. Kent State became the first team to to turn the ball over on Georgia's first-ranked offense, uh, first-team offense, excuse me, all season long. They became the first team besides Alabama to score more than 20 points on the Georgia defense since the start of last season. And Kent State became the first team at all this season to score a touchdown on Georgia's first-team defense, period. With that being said, shout-out to Kent State, to Coach Lewis, to the whole team for putting up a great performance against Georgia. And I think they'll be able to carry that momentum into their homecoming game this week against Ohio on Saturday. For Georgia, um, I'm not worried about Georgia. I think they're still probably the number one team in the country. It's just a sloppy performance from them. And I think they underestimated Kent State a little bit. But their next two games are against Missouri and Auburn, which they should be heavy favorites again. Their offense has put up big numbers, gaining more than 470 yards in all game, all their games this season. So I would still have Georgia at number one, despite the close game against Kent State. So I would take Georgia one. I would have Ohio State at two. Um, they crushed Wisconsin this Saturday, beating them 52-21. to They had no problems with Wisconsin. They won by a large margin, dominated most of the game. Uh, they're undefeated. The offense is playing well. C.J. Stroud still among the Heisman favorites. Ohio State has Rutgers. Michigan State and Iowa as their next three games in the schedule. And if any one of those teams is going to try and compete with this Buckeyes team, they're going to need to figure a way to figure out a way to slow down the offense. But I'll put Ohio State too. I would have the Crimson Tide of Alabama at three. They beat Vanderbilt 55 to three. Um, their offensive line couldn't generate running lanes and couldn't keep pressure off of Bryce Stroud. Uh, Bryce Stroud. I just combined Bryce Young and C.J. Stroud's names. So there's that. Bryce Young, they couldn't keep pressure off him earlier this year against Texas. And if you remember that Texas game, Alabama only won by one point. But the past two weeks against Louisiana, Monroe, and Vanderbilt. Obviously not the level of competition Texas is. Alabama's done a lot better of a job. This week for Alabama is a big show-me game for Alabama because they need to show me that they are as good as they were last year. They don't have the three first-round receivers that got picked in the first round. They don't have them. They play Arkansas this week on the road. Arkansas is one of the best defenses in the SEC in terms of creating pressure in the backfield. So it is a big game for Alabama. So I'm going to take Alabama at three. 
Four, I'll take Michigan. They got a, a close win over Maryland on Saturday, but I think it was good for them to face that adversity. Um, they're going on the road to play Iowa in a rematch of last year's Big Ten Championship game this week. Their quarterback, J.J. McCarthy, didn't have his best performance Saturday against Maryland. They leaned on running back Blake Corum to help win the game. Um, but Michigan's been good this season. Their their defense is good. They have a favorable schedule outside of the Ohio State and Penn State games. So I'd have Michigan at four. So I'd have Georgia one, Ohio State two, Alabama three, Michigan four is my playoff teams right now. On the outside looking in, five I would have the USC Trojans. Um, close win for them against Oregon State Saturday. Um... They face Arizona State at home uh, against the Sun Devils. The USC's offense should have no problem getting back on track while the defense continues to sustain its ridiculous takeaway rate. They've had 14 turnovers in four games. So I expect that level of dominance to continue Saturday for USC against Arizona State. Six, I would have Clemson. They're coming off a thrilling win against Wake Forest in double overtime. Uh, the concern for Dabo Sweeney shifts from the offense to the defense, which couldn't get to Sam Hartman or stop the Wake Forest quarterback who carved up the Tigers for an ACC record six TD passes. Um, Their game, they play North Carolina State in primetime on Saturday in a game that could decide the ACC's Atlantic Division. The good news is, I think Clemson can lean on their own quarterback, DJ Uyangalele, more so now after his best passing performance since his first start in 2020. So I'd have USC at five, Clemson at six, some SEC East teams at seven and eight. I would have Tennessee seven, Kentucky eight, Oklahoma State nine, and North Carolina State at 10. With Penn State, Utah, Oregon, Ole Miss, and Washington just outside the top 10. So let's pick some games in college football this weekend. Some big games, like I said. Talked a little bit about them already. But let's get to it. So, Michigan and Iowa. Um, I'm not overly impressed with Iowa's offensive ability. Have only scored over 17 points once. This season, so I'm going to take Michigan to win on the road. Top 15 matchup. Ooh, this is a tough one. Number 7, Kentucky at number 14, Ole Miss. I'm going to take the Ole Miss Rebels in this one at home. A little bit of an upset. Kentucky only beat Northern Illinois of the MAC by 8 on Saturday. Um, and I think Ole Miss's offense can compete with Kentucky's offense. So I'll take Ole Miss. The number 18 Oklahoma Sooners at the undefeated, unranked TCU Horn Frogs. Give me Oklahoma. Coming off a loss to Kansas State. I think they'll be ready to play at TCU. Big game in the Big 12. Rematch of the Big 12 championship game last year. 
Number nine, Oklahoma State at number 16, Baylor. I'll take... Uh, it's a tough one. I'll take Oklahoma State on the road. Wake Forest at Florida State. I'll take Wake Forest. I think they're better than Florida State. Three and one, Iowa State at four and oh, Kansas. Rock chalk, baby. Kansas has been one of the best stories of college football so far this year. Undefeated for the first time since 2007. I think they should be ranked in the top 25. And if the college football season ended today, Kansas would get into a New Year's Six Bowl. How about that? Coach Lance Leopold, who is formerly the head coach of Buffalo, has done a great job with that squad. Texas A&M at Mississippi State. I'll take Texas A&M. Cal at Washington State. Give me the Cougars. Number 10, North Carolina State at number 5, Clemson. I'm going to take Clemson just because they're at home. And then SMU at UCF. I'll take UCF to win at home. And that is going to do it for this week's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. Be sure to follow the podcast on Instagram at Jote Sports Pod. That's at J-O-T Sports Pod. You can also give me a follow on Twitter at Jack Bernie TV. Uh, we will be back next week with another award-winning episode, recapping week four in the NFL and much, much more. Until then, I've been Jack Bernie. Have a great week, everybody.